I bring that water up here just in case I need it, trying to be prepared. And uh, you talk about preparation. This morning, they were trying to get that uh, thing that you use to light grills and stuff with, and it wouldn't light. George had one in his case over there. I thought, wow. I said, no, I don't have one on me, you know. That's being prepared. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, I'd like to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. As this passage is looking at the incarnation of Christ and what that means. And so I obviously picked this back some time ago, these four Sundays, um, so that we could be considering uh, the truths about the one who came and dwelt among us. Let me read Hebrews 2:14 through 16 today. This is the section that I'll be concentrating on. Since therefore the children, the children are the ones just mentioned in the previous verse, Jesus saying, Behold, I and the children that God has given me, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word uh, reveals to us the meaning of the coming of the Christ in so many facets. We thank you that uh, the truth of his coming to this world is rich. And we pray today as we consider one particular facet of what it means for him to come into this world and to take on human flesh and nature. We pray that, uh, Lord, that you will uh, encourage our hearts, comfort comfort our hearts in in the light of what uh, we must face in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this week what I'm doing is I'm jumping ahead a little bit because I wanted to get this, I wanted to get all four parts in. And if I covered some of the details that were just before verse 14, I wasn't going to make it. Um, it's not because they're not important. It's just that I had a certain design during Advent season. But I will say this, and just by way of quick review, what we're saying is, is that Jesus Christ must be truly human, yet without sin, in order to restore mankind to the glorious destiny that God created him for. Uh, The world was designed by the Lord to be under the rule and the dominion of humanity. And that has never been taken away. It's been ruined by the fall. Adam sinned. He brought great disaster into the world by his sin. The old Puritan saying is, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So it affects all of us. And we can complain about that and say, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. That's reality. That's why God set it up. So there's no sense arguing with it. Also, we've seen here that someone who's a genuine human, he's more than that, but someone who's genuinely human has come and he has fulfilled God's plan. He's fulfilled the Psalm 8 man that we saw back there in verses 5 down through verse 8, that he is the he's the perfect man. And he came into this world. He's a man of sorrows. He could even describe his life to his disciples right at the end of his life before he was crucified as those who had continued with him in his sorrows, in his trials. And so uh, we're told here in the passage just before that, that God 
made him perfect through sufferings. It doesn't mean he was ever imperfect, but all through his life, he passed one test to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. In other words, when he was 12 years old, he wasn't ready for the cross, not because he was sinful, but because he matured as a real man. And so uh, it was through his sufferings that uh, he delivered us and he's brought us to the place where one day we will be restored to that full honor and glory and dominion that was intended for us. But now I want to bring you to verses 14 through 16, and it's another facet of his coming into this world as man. It's not unrelated at all to what we've been looking at, but it's just another way, another part of the rich truth that's brought out here. And what is it? Well, Jesus Christ took on human nature to defeat the devil and death. Now, that is relevant stuff. And I don't think I have to remind you that unless Jesus comes again, you're going to die. I'm going to die. And Jesus came to deal with it. It's highly relevant stuff. Notice there in verse 14, he says uh, that where the children share, that's the word fellowship. The children share in flesh and blood. In other words, you and I, the children, the true believers in Christ, we have the same nature, we're human beings, but the amazing thing is it says he himself likewise partook of the same things. Not only human flesh, he's not, he's not in a human costume, he's really human. He's, he's the genuine article. Anything, whatever it takes to be human, he's that. Which reminds us that it's not necessary to be sinful to be human. You know the old saying, to, to err is human. Well, uh, true... Post-fall, but Adam proved to us that you could be a real human in Eve without being sinful. Jesus is truly human uh, without being uh, a sinner. So the text says there, likewise, that has the idea of in like manner. It implies similarity, correspondence. He came and um, he took on our flesh so that he is truly related to us physically as well. He's a real human. He's back in Psalm 132. He's the fruit of David. He's also in the one of the gospel narratives. He's the fruit of Mary's womb. He really became human through her. And somehow the Holy Spirit overshadowed that so that he did not partake of Adam's sin. Um, so. This passage is telling us that it required death to defeat Satan and the power of death. The Puritan John Owen, he had that famous treatise where he wrote about the death of death and the death of Christ on our behalf. Uh, the purpose of the incarnation, looking at it from one angle, was that Christ, as man, might die for us and defeat uh, death in our lives. Uh, who? The perfect man. The man who had our nature, he died a, a penal substitutionary death. In other words, when he was on the cross, he was being punished by the father for us. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. And he was doing it in our place. Penal substitutionary death. One writer puts it like this. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute was necessary for the overthrow of him who had persuaded mankind to abandon life. For death, it required death to destroy death. Now, notice something here that he says about the devil's uh, abilities in verse 14. Notice what it says there. 
It says in that last clause that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He, that he might destroy him. And that's a common word in the New Testament. It shows up, this particular Greek word shows up 27 times. And it means to render something ineffective. It, it means that something that was operating is no longer operative. And that's what he did. Think of it like this. There's a scene in the uh, in the movie. Uh, name is slipping me right now. 1965. Uh, the the uh, who said that? What? No, that's not it. <laughs> I can't believe I can't think of it. Julie Andrews. What? No, no, not that one. But sound of music. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Don't, don't be embarrassed for me. This happens to me more and more all the time. Um, there's a scene in there where the Von Trapps are escaping the Nazis at toward the end of the movie. And the, the nuns hide them at the at the what do you call that? The, the Abbey, right? The nunnery. And uh, so they can't find them. They've escaped out another way. And then the Nazis go get into their cars to start them. And they just run, 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 run. They won't fire. And when they come back, when when the mother comes back in, the nuns are standing there with uh, with plug wires and distributor caps. They rendered the cars non-operative, ineffective. It's kind of like when people have their cats declawed. They're keeping them from what you think about that. That's not the point. They're keeping them from from digging people. The abominable snowman. Remember that? And, and how that he comes in at the end and he has no teeth. So he's now he, all he can do now is put stars on top of the tree. He's no longer that monster. So the NLT translates this that he might break the power. NIV does that, too. Or NASB 95 says that he might render him powerless. And so it's just like when a governor commutes a death sentence. He has now rendered inoperative the sentence of death on a on a on a criminal. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross for us. So the fact that we were going to die and that we were in his grips, that's all been rendered null and void. We kind of looked at that back when we were in those few weeks in First John. First John 3, 8 says, for this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In other words, those murderous works of the devil and keeping people from seeing the truth of Christ and coming out of sin and death and eternal death. So Christ rendered the work of the devil as inoperative in our lives. Uh, he has stripped him of his strength. He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the king of his beloved son. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil's no longer a formidable foe. He is. Uh, he's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he, may, whom he may devour. And he wants to devour you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to bring you into sin, even as a Christian, so that he can ruin your life even now. So we don't we don't make light of the devil. He's a powerful foe, as Luther says in the hymn on earth is not his equal. So we don't we don't play games with the, with the devil. And and, you know, even Michael, the archangel, was told not to give a railing accusation against the devil. He's not to be fooled with. He's not to be played with. He's a powerful being. But he has been stripped of his strength as far as death and destruction for the children of God. Now. The question that ought to be coming to our minds right now is, in what sense did the devil have the power of death? Um, 
the word power there is the word dominion. He had the, he was he had the he had the ability to to bring men into death. In what sense? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that he uh, was sovereign in that God and him are opposite equals. The good God, the bad, the bad God, they're equals. It doesn't mean that at all. Everything he does is by permission. Satan doesn't have the final say in anything. He doesn't have the say, to, to, you're going to be saved, you're going to be damned. He doesn't have any of that. Everything he does, he does by divine permission. But he does have ability. And it's a God-given ability. It's now perverse, though, but he has this God-given ability. He can inflict pain and suffering. He can uh, inflict blindness. He does. He blinds unsaved men spiritually. Uh, he's able to enter into the heart of men. He did Judas, John 13. He entered into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. We read Job 1 and 2. We see all the things that he was given permission by God to do there. He has great power, but he's on a leash. So Satan had the power of death over us in that we were once in his realm. And you know this if you were saved a little bit later in life, even as a teenager or as an adult. You know that. You know that you are living in a realm of darkness. The gospel was foolishness to you. Um, how did you get there? Well, you were born that way. The serpent of old deceived our father. And, well, he didn't deceive Adam. Adam did it deliberately. Eve was deceived, we're told, in First Timothy. But that's what Jesus means when he says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Think of what he was doing when he came in the form of a servant. Now, I don't know if Satan had any idea that Adam would have all this offspring through the centuries. I don't know what he knew. But he did know this. He did know that if he could get Adam to disobey God, that he would bring death upon him. He knew that. He's a murderer. Think of what he was doing. He was trying to take this human being who was perfect before God, who had perfect fellowship with God, and with his charred earth policy, he was saying, okay, I'm damned now, but I'm going to bring him into damnation too. I'm going to, I'm going to kill his soul and his wife's soul. And that's what he did. He's called Apollyon in Revelation 9-11, which means destroyer. He instigated the fall, and when he did that, he brought death into the world through Adam. Uh, now, God had told Adam that the day that he ate of that tree, he would die. And when he ate of that tree, he died right then. And we know he died spiritually because when the Lord came to meet with them in the garden, what did they do? They ran and they hid. They no longer had fellowship. With they had died spiritually. And then you read in Genesis 5, Adam reaches age 930. And what happened? He died physically, too. And apart from the grace of God, he would have died the second death as well. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Satan introduced death into the human family. And everybody outside of redemption in Jesus Christ is going to experience death in all of its nightmarish horror, namely the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Now, there are other passages in the, in the Bible that shed light on this uh, idea that Satan has the power of death. One of them is the Jesus says a couple of little things there that remind us of this in the in the parable where he's casting out demons. Well, he, that's not the parable part. But he's casting out demons and the Jewish leadership say, well, he does it by the power of Satan. So Jesus tells a little short parable. But then he then he also adds this. 
He calls Satan the strong man, and he calls himself the one stronger than he. But this is what he says. When a strong man, Satan, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. In other words, his stuff, his things, whatever he owns is safe and secure because no one can overcome him. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils, or as the NLT says, and he carries off his belongings. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that's what humankind is like. They're, they're living in this big palace, and there's a lord of the palace, and he's Satan. And while people may think they're free there, because they, they move around the palace, there's this horrible tyrant they're under, and they're kept there, and they're kept there for death, until... One stronger than him comes along, he tears off his armor, and he takes away, and he despoils him. And that's what happened to you and me, if we're saved. We were in that palace, we were in that kingdom, and Jesus came along and he said, I'm taking him out of there, and you can't stop me. And that's what he did. That's why you're saved today, if you're saved. Because he came and he overpowered Satan. Paul talks about it in a more uh, non-poetic way. He puts it like this. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And then what happened? That's how I was. That's how you were. You were dead in trespasses and sins. The gospel meant nothing to you, it meant nothing to me, until God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, I couldn't do a thing about it. I was dead. I didn't know God, didn't care about God. I was dead. He says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Or listen to this. Another passage which shows how Satan has the power of death. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy how to function as a pastor, as a man of God. And he says, servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And listen to this. That's bad enough. They escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That's what people are doing. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. It's like First John five nineteen. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Second Corinthians four four. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And you know, you and I, we should witness, we should tell other people about Christ, but unless God removes that blindness, we can be the best apologist, we can give the clearest presentation, and we should, we should try to hone our skills that way, but unless, well, like it goes on to say, it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You and I don't have the ability to do that. But that's what God did. He, sh- he shined in your heart. He didn't put light into your heart. It doesn't say that. It says God himself shined in your heart. 
so that you would understand Christ. Otherwise, you and I are blind. I think it's interesting the, the, the language that Paul uses there. The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. When God said, let there be light, what happened? Did he have to repeat it? No. He said it and it happened. Or as it says in Psalm 33, he spoke and it was. And that's what he did to, to you and me. We thank God that he's sovereign in salvation. He said, let there be light. He shined in your heart and you believed and you saw the glory of Christ that you'd never seen before. He rescued us from the from the kingdom of darkness and he put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the death grip is gone. There's no second death for you and me. Resurrection Day. Jesus calls it the last day in John 6, 39, 40. That will be the day of ultimate manifestation that the devil's grip on us has been taken away forever. Uh, death will be swallowed up in victory. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, you've got that taunt song. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, 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 grave or oh, Hades, where is your victory? Death swallowed up in victory. And like Jesus Christ says in Revelation 1:18, we can say it then. I am alive forevermore. You'll never experience anything like death again. Now, going hand in hand with the truth of of what we've just looked at is another parallel truth here. Jesus victory over death does something wonderful for us as we live in this world as Christians. Um, It removes from us the enslaving fear of death. I remember a day. There are some days you can remember from your childhood that just stand out. I was about four. I'm not really sure, but I was around four. I know I wasn't in school yet. And all of a sudden it struck me that I was going to die someday. I don't know why that happened. I have no idea, but it did. And I remember that day I cried all day long as a four-year-old. And I remember my two older sisters laughed at me all day because they thought I was losing my mind. But it became a reality to me. I'm going to die someday. And I didn't. And I thought. My mother and father are going to die someday, and they have now. I've actually gone through that experience, and I couldn't contemplate. How can I go on living in this world without my father and my mother? And I had this dread of, of death. Jesus died to take away that lifelong enslaving dread of death. See 15? And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's man's great phobia. He knows he's going to die. Just listen to some of the things people say about this. It shows their fear. I've never read this person. Her name's Susan Cheever. Maybe I'm not a a great reader of secular literature. Not against that. But her name's Susan Cheever. And this is what she said in one of her writings. She says, death is terrifying because it is so ordinary. It happens all the time. In other words, what she was saying there is it's not like a rare disease. You know, you hear some of these diseases and and you have one chance in one trillion of getting it. You don't worry about it. But she's saying it happens to everybody. I mean, I graduated in in a high school class of 66 people and 10 to 12 of them have died now. People that I knew that and it's like, wait, I'm still a kid. How can that be happening? But it, it, it does happen. It's common. Everyone knows that's inevitable. And that's, by the way, that's the reason why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he says, you know, it's better to be found in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And he explains why. He's not saying it's wrong to go to the house of feasting. 
I suppose we're all going to be doing that over the next few days. Uh, but he's saying, saying you'll learn a lot more at a funeral than you will a party. We all know that. You go to a funeral and you look up front and you see either the, the, the casket or the urn and you say, I'm going to die someday too. I can hardly grasp that and believe it, but it is going to happen. I am going to die. So she says death is terrifying because it's so ordinary. Listen to Mark Twain. You know, if you read any of Mark Twain, I've read quite a bit of Mark Twain, you can see that from a young writer to an older writer, he became more and more cynical. At the beginning, he sounds almost like he's a Christian. He can quote the Bible, and, but as he gets older, he becomes more. As he's gone through the hardships of life, watched a daughter die dramatically, he just gets more and more bitter and more atheistic in his thinking. Listen to what he said. He says, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. He's trying to convince himself that you just die like a a tree dies or a dog dies and that's it. Uh, Listen to Woody Allen. No relation. That's not really his real name anyway. I think his last name is really Konigsberg or something like that. Listen to what he said. I am not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. What is he saying? Let me translate that. He's saying, I'm afraid of death. Listen to Woody Allen again. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. He says, I do not want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Now, it's important to understand what. Uh, verse 15 doesn't mean. I think it's very important to establish that. Let me just mention some things it doesn't mean about not having the fear of death. It doesn't mean now that we can pretend that death is our friend. I hear Christians saying that death is not our friend. Yes, for us, it's the gateway. If we die, we go into the presence of Christ. But death itself is not a friend. It's the last enemy. It's an ugly, grotesque thing. It should never have been in our world. It's not a plaything. It's not a light and easy matter. Don't never talk to a dying person, a person who's got an obvious terminal illness. Never talk to them lightly about it. Have you ever thought you were dying? Don't answer that out loud. I don't expect to. I'm not taking a poll here. I did one time. And what happened was, is that we were on vacation years ago. And just before we had gone on vacation, I helped someone move in our church. A bunch of us helped someone move. And one thing we moved was a big piano. And I pinched a nerve in my in my shoulder, my left shoulder. And so we were on vacation and we were at my father's house and we were driving from my father's house back to Diane's mother's house uh, to stay overnight. And that day I began to get this radiating pain down my arm and it got worse and worse as, as they went on. So we're driving back through Bangor to get to the town of Orrington where we were staying at night. And I'm thinking, I wasn't telling anybody, I mean, I was, I had told her I had a lot of pain in my arm. And I was probably in my middle 40s then. And uh, we were going down Broadway in Bangor, and we went by McDonald's, and I had the memory that someone that I knew as a kid growing up in church had died in that parking lot of a heart attack. So I said to her, I said, I'm going to stop at the hospital and see what's going on. They put me in a, in a room, and I just sat there. And sat there. They didn't do anything for me. I finally got up and laughed and went home. I thought, I'll just die at my mother-in-law's house. I'd rather do that than die here sitting on a table. And besides that, there was a baby in the next room screaming its head off. And that wasn't very comforting. But as I sat there for that hour and a half, I thought, I wonder, am I, am I dying tonight? I really didn't know. Am I having a heart attack? I didn't know. 
but it was a pinched nerve, as it, as it turned out to be. I found that out later on, a couple of weeks later. So, so. Um, and I got a bill anyway from the hospital for seven dollars for because I took my blood pressure when I first came in. I paid it and just, you know, it's not a it's not a friend. And that means this. It means that it isn't easy to face death, even as a Christian, even with all the promises. It's not easy to face death. We still need dying grace. And as one older, wiser pastor said to me one time. I said to him as a young Christian, I think I have that. And he says, no, you don't, but, but you'll have it when you need it. That doesn't always happen. We understand. I've read in places where when Luther died, he died. He cried like a baby out of fear. Don't know. Um, when, when it also talks about release those who fear of death, you know, that we were released from that. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that all the time you're always going to have absolute confidence about facing death. There will be times when you wake up in bed at night or wake up in the morning and it strikes you again that you're going to die. It's like assurance of salvation. We should have assurance of salvation. But as the old confessions like the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, they all have a section there that says that our assurance fluctuates for various reasons. And your uh, confidence in the face of death is going to fluctuate. It's not always going to be perfect in this world. So if you, if you, right now, if anybody here who's a believer is saying, ooh, I really do fear death, though, well, it doesn't mean that somehow that you're lacking as a Christian or that you're a terrible Christian. It just means that our confidence isn't perfect in this world. Um, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean, well, you know, I don't need to fear death now, so... I'm going to go do some bungee jumping. Now, I don't think anybody here has done that, but I don't see any re- redeeming value in doing that. All you're doing is risking your life. For what reason? So, well, I raised $15 for something. Okay, go ahead. Have at it. But, you know, it doesn't mean we can be frivolous with our lives. You know, scaling sheer cliffs using only our, our fingers and our toes to grip. Um, let me say this, too. It d- it doesn't mean that death isn't a sad and sorrowful thing. You know, when my father died in 2005, you know, and I didn't see him much because didn't live near him anymore. But, you know, he wasn't very healthy for the last few years of his life. And I knew it was coming, but I had never experienced having a parent die. And when he died, it was all it was cracked up to be. It was a grievous thing. And I suppose that prepared me. For later, my mother died in 2020 because I didn't fear the pain as much as I had feared it before. I knew it was going to hurt, but, you know, uh, but death death isn't easy. It's not something that it's not wrong for a Christian. We know this to be sad and sorrowful about it. We just don't sorrow as those who have no hope. You know, that's why uh, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Even though he knew he was going to rape, he looked around and he saw the grief and misery that death had brought into the world. And he wailed, literally. You know what they're doing today? They advertise after someone dies in obituaries that there'll be a, what? Celebration of life. Now, I'm not against, at a funeral, talking about the good things that someone did and 
thank being, and that's right to be thankful for the life they had that God gave them for the gifts and all that that he gave them. But what people are trying to do there, they're trying to cover up the idea that this is really rotten. When you're sitting at a funeral of someone that you love dearly and they're now, now no longer part of your life. Funerals are a place to mourn. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't think that that's somehow sub-Christian. It's not. Death is an ugly thing. What does verse 15 mean? It means, generally speaking, that we know Jesus has taken on our nature. He's come into the world. He's lived sinlessly. He's died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended to glory. And he's restored glory to us. So we know Even if we die now, before he comes, we're going to be in his presence, which Paul says by the spirit is far better. We're confident that God is our confident that God is our father, that Christ is our savior and brother, as it says in verses 11 through 13. In that all my sins are washed away. I mean, think about it. If we could say we could pick one person out of the day and we could do this every Sunday, we'd say, we're going to show, we've got a video God gave us, and it's your whole life. He's going to show all, the, all, your, all your sins, the things you've done, the things you've thought. What a terrible thing. You know, I don't know how many of you lost your power this week, but I was, think, I was thinking about this driving down this morning. You know, we didn't have electricity for three days, but you know what? I was thinking, you know, I don't know, deserve electricity. I deserve the electric chair. I do. You do, too. You all do. You don't believe that, but it's true. But. We're confident now. We don't have to. We don't have to dread death. I don't. I don't relish the idea of dying. I don't relish the idea of getting old and sickly. I don't relish that. And it's beginning to happen incrementally now. I'm 67. And by the way, they keep changing this a little bit. But statistically, now I guess the average American lives to be 80 years old. I'm 67. I think that's about. I've lived about 83 percent of my life, which I find hard to believe. But it's true. But I don't dread dying anymore. I don't look forward to it in one sense. But it's not that that thing that says, what happens after that? I know I will never, because of Christ, I'll never experience the second death. But quite the opposite. Glory, honor, and dominion in the age to come, in the new heavens and new earth. John Calvin wrote this. Although we must still meet death, Let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us. But notice verse 15, what it says again there. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Don't forget that the unsaved person, that's what he's living in right now. He fears death. He doesn't want to talk about it. Oh, I know people talk about it cavalier. I'm not afraid to die. But they're enslaved to it. Don't underestimate how people are living their lives and how that person that you see on the surface really, perhaps just under the surface, he's fearing dying. He knows his life is going by. Henry David Thoreau, who was not a Christian, he says in his book Walden, it's a famous quote, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I don't know if any of you uh, have ever heard of the Babylon Bee. Has anybody heard of the Babylon Bee? Okay. It's 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 done by Christians, and it's satire. 
and it looks at human life the way it really is. <clears throat> and in August of 2017, they had this article, and it describes so insightfully <clears throat> how people are dealing with death. Listen to what they wrote. I'll read part of it. Or maybe I'll read all of it. <clears throat> A new study of the world's population revealed that the expected mortality rate among humans is still 100%. Researchers at Harvard University confirmed Tuesday. The surprising study found that given, given enough time, every single person on this planet will pass away, completely irrespective of wealth, class, gender, race, nationality, or creed. The results are fairly conclusive, had researcher Brian Vogue told reporters. We expected to have a few outliers who managed to buck the trend. But even the ultra-rich, the famous, the powerful, will eventually go to the grave, according to our models. The study looked at the population samples from various parts of the globe and confirmed that, given enough time, every single member of the sample group would one day face death. Computer models confirmed the findings of Harvard's research team, demonstrating that no person out of the 7.5 billion people on the planet would be able to live forever. Now, here's the kicker. I love how they closed it. At publishing time, those who were confronted with the results of the study reportedly experienced a brief moment of introspection, followed by an attempt to push the thought of dying out of their minds and then went about their lives as if they'll live forever. And that is exactly what people do. They'll come to a, a place like this and they'll hear a message, they'll hear the gospel, and they'll be bothered by it. But by the time they've eaten their lunch, it's like, that's gone. We've been freed from this as, as Christians. This nagging, joy-ruining fear of death. You know, that's what happens to people at a pool party or something like that. They go to the beach, and all of a sudden the thought will strike their mind, you're going to die. And it ruins it. It's, we don't have to live that way because Jesus Christ, who we're told, has abolished death on our behalf and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He says, because I live, you shall live also. Jesus, the man, has come to our aid, it says there in verse 16. He's rescued us from the power and the dread of death. Can I ask you this as I close? Has death, death itself and the fear of death, has it been made null and void in your life? Do you know you're saved? Do you know you're trusting Jesus Christ and all is well ultimately? Even though you may still die a horrible death in this world, we don't know what's around the corner. I'd like to die as an old man in my sleep and, you know, wake up, and wake up in heaven. I'd love that. But that may not happen. I don't know if you know this, but it was, what's the date today? It's 23rd, 24th? Yeah, it was almost two months. It was just over two months ago today, October 22nd. I almost easily could have lost my life in a car accident on the way home from here. I was in a head-on collision. Didn't tell most of you that. I've got a picture to show you the car sometimes if you ever want to see it. It was my fault. I, I'm the one that made the mistake. Uh, you just don't know. You just don't know when you're going to die. Has death been made null and void in your case? Are you free now to live and face physical death? Jesus says, remember what he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. May God grant it to everyone here and many more outside these walls.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for sending your son into this world. To come into this world as a, as, a, as a babe. To be willing, backing up, to be conceived in the womb by a supernatural uh, way which we don't understand. Uh, to live a life in this world. To be a perfect man but yet be insulted and to be misunderstood and lied about. And to be accused of evil things. To be called um, Satan's man. And yet coming to, to do good to mankind. Uh, we thank you that you sent him and that he passed every test perfectly and that he went to the cross as the Lamb of God, spotless, and he shed his blood for us. We thank you that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you that the righteous one has died for the unrighteous ones to bring us to God. So, Lord, today we pray as we are living in this Advent season that you will encourage us that we have been restored as believers to one day to experience in its fullness the, uh, the glory, the honor, and the dominion that you intended for us and that death has been defeated in our lives in every way so that one day we can say, I am alive forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.